Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, and in just a moment, I will read for us the central passage by which I will address us this morning and into the afternoon. Genesis 28, I'll read from verse 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 22. The series of teaching that we've been in has been asking a broader question, and that question is, what is the gospel? What is the central message and the good news of the Christian faith? And in this series of teaching, we have been moving from Easter Sunday to today. Ascension Sunday. Did you know that? Today is Ascension Sunday. 40 days after Easter, after the resurrection of the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven. And that has been marked out in the calendars of Christians for the last 2,000 years, more or less. And one of the things I've noticed and been trying to encourage you to think about is that this is actually a big deal. It's part of the, the good news. It's really One of the things that I think might be a shame is that we may not even know about Ascension Day, but more importantly, we may not really understand the significance of the Ascension. And by missing out on the Ascension, because it's one link, one aspect about Christ, it's one aspect about the gospel, it means that our gospel understanding is maybe weaker than it could be if we fully appreciated the Ascension, which is true for every part of it. The point of this study has not been to say the ascension is the most important. It's that by looking at any of the key aspects of Christ's character, his person, or what he did in the gospel, you see the whole thing. You see the whole thing better by looking at his incarnation or his death or his resurrection. And in this case, we're hopefully going to see the gospel better by seeing his descent from heaven to earth, down to the earth, under the earth, resurrection from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. In a book based on the findings of a major study in 2005, book by Christian Smith called Soul Searching, he summarizes what was the largest youth and religious study of its its kind. It's something that's been referenced a lot. If you've never heard it, then this will just be good and helpful for you to have in your filing cabinet mentally about the Christian faith. But this study was done in the early 2000s, and in the book, Soul Searching, Christian Smith explains that teenagers were interviewed and asked all kinds of questions about what it means to be a Christian. These were Christian teenagers, kids that grew up going to the church. And they said, in summary, Christians believe that humans are good, that God is a God who's willing to help themselves, that salvation is primarily about living a good life, that the purpose of the Christian faith is for God to help us when we're in times of trouble so our lives will be happier, and that God is, in summary, a distant, far-off God watching from the heavens what's going on. And every once in a while, he might come down and help us out when we ask for help. That's a brief summary of what Christian Smith has said in the most thorough study of the youth in America at the time, the early 2000s. This is what they're getting from pastors, from churches. This is what are now the next generation of young people, the millennials and folks along those lines uh, that are in our churches today. 
So Christian Smith summarizes these findings with three key words. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. In other words, Christian Smith is arguing that by looking at the research of just the average teenager going to church 20 years ago, they would have thought Christianity is moralistic. Live a good life. God will help those who help themselves. It's therapeutic. Christianity is a feel-good therapy to help you when you're hurting. So that way, your life is happier. And lastly, God is not personally near and close. He is far off and distant. He comes down every once in a while when you ask for help. Is that the gospel? What have we been teaching in America over the last several decades about the gospel? When we focus in on Jesus' descent from heaven, his death, his burial, resurrection, ascension, I think we'll see this is not the gospel. And therefore, all the more urgent for us to read God's word and consider who God really is and what he really has done and why this is good news. So let's turn our Bibles, as I said, to Genesis chapter 28 and follow along as I read this story about Jacob. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all of you and all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. With this one big idea, God helps those who can't help themselves. 
Christianity is good news, not primarily good advice. The God of the Bible is a seeker. He initiates. He comes and draws near. He comes down, even when we're running from him. Well, maybe that was more than one big idea, but do you get the idea? God comes down. He helps those who can't help themselves. Christianity is news, not advice. So I want to first begin our time by making sure you understand a little bit of the backstory. We're picking up Genesis halfway through the book, chapter 28. It's 50 chapters long, first book of the Bible. And it says right there in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And that one detail is significant. I think it underscores and helps make the point of what I just said about our big idea. But we need the backstory to understand what happened prior to that. In fact, we need the whole backstory. So in summary fashion, let's look at this first idea about the gate of heaven. In the dream that Jacob has, heaven opens up. But you need to first understand that the gate of heaven is closed. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. And you're going to notice that when God is in the formation of creation, he is putting together land and animals and humans and his presence. We see in Genesis chapter 2 that in verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. The man, the human, you could translate that word, the man, the human from dust from the ground. The Adam is human, and he was made from the Adama, that's the word for ground, and he was breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then notice in verse 8 that the Lord God planted a garden, and it, it is in Eden. It is not called the Garden of Eden, it is the garden that is within Eden, and it's on the east side of Eden, verse 8. And there he put the man whom he had formed. God formed a man. He put him in the garden that is in Eden, the garden that is in the east of Eden. You may not know this, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 and 14, it describes Eden this way. You were in Eden, that garden of God. The place where I placed you was the holy mountain of God. In other words, when God forms Adam, he takes dust from the wild waste wilderness kind of land, not flush, flourishing and, and lush with greenery, but rather the, the ground, the dirt. He begins with the dirt and then God purposes a plan. He ascends humans to the heights of the holy mountain of God. One of the first moves God does is make a man and then he brings him up. He ascends up into this garden, this paradise-like heaven and earth overlapping spatial reality where humans and God can dwell together in unity, harmony. God generously, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, gives to Adam all kinds of delicious fruits and trees to eat from. Notice that the first command he gives is in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may 
eat, eat, or surely eat of every tree of the garden. First command is not stay away from, I'm holding from you. It is eat, eat, literally in the Hebrew. Eat, eat is translated surely eat. Sometimes when you're writing in Hebrew, in order to underline or emphasize or bold print something, you don't have those ways of writing, so you just repeat them. So it's surely eat. I want you to take hold of and enjoy every tree that is in the garden. God is a generous provider of delicious fruits from all kinds of trees, including a tree that is in the middle of the garden, a tree called the tree of life, a tree that provides eternal life. By eating from that tree, humans will be able to live forever in this beautiful, perfect paradise garden. The only thing that would mess this up would be if humans did not obey the second part of God's command in verse 17. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or I like to translate it good and bad, the knowing of good and bad, that tree, the tree that symbolizes all that is the wisdom of the infinite creator God, eating from that tree is to say, I no longer want to submit myself to God's infinite wisdom. I'm good enough on my own to know what is good and bad. And so, as you might know, the story of the Bible has that God and man were to dwell together but still be distinct from one another. That there is a line that was drawn and said, there is boundaries here. There is a distinction between creator and creation. Heaven and earth were separated in chapter one. Land and and the sky, there's separation all through Genesis 1, and this separation, these distinctions are good. In fact, he says, it's very good. As much as God does desire to create a world where heaven and earth and man and and God live together in harmony, there still needs to be distinctions between who's who. And this tree symbolizes all of that. So when Adam and Eve in chapter 3 take from that fruit, the tree of knowing good and bad, they illustrate the choice each of us make when we determine to know better than God. And so in God's kindness and justice, he curses the serpent. He curses the relationship between men and women. He curses the ground of the earth. And I say in God's kindness, God removes Adam and Eve from the garden and puts up a gate and closes the gate of the garden. Look down at chapter 3. You'll notice this is kind of God to do this. It is right and just, but it is also love and mercy. Verse 22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden was placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you notice that the banishment from the garden is banishment from the tree? The tree of life. The tree that symbolizes and provides the sustaining grace to live forever. So, it is kind of God to take humans that think they know better than God and not allow them to live forever and ever in hell. That would be a hell. Humans 
who have rejected the authority of God, living forever and ever without his reign and rule guiding them every step of the way. I think that's a good definition of hell. And God in his kindness is saying, I do not want hell on earth. I want heaven to be opened again, but first we must close it off. And a plan begins to ensue. And this is the backstory of not just our text, but really the whole Bible. And so what we need to understand is that in God's kindness, he closes the gate of heaven. And therefore he moves them out of the garden, down the mountain of God, further east. Look over in chapter four, notice the way that movements east in Genesis seem like they are downward further away from the presence of God. In chapter four, after Cain is killed by his brother Abel, and God is talking to him about his punishment. Look at verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This theme continues after Noah in the flood story in Genesis chapter 11. If you turn your Bibles to Genesis 11:1, 1, you'll see this east of Eden theme again. Noah, the flood. God decides to start over with the most godly and righteous man on the earth. But immediately after God made an amazing promise to Noah and his family that he would never destroy the earth again, Noah sins by wanting more than what he has. In fact, he wants too much of something that comes from a fruit. The end result is that he ends up passed out, drunk and naked and ashamed. Can you think of a story where somebody takes something from a fruit? Too much of something that they shouldn't have. And they end up naked and ashamed and their family is cursed and they end up east of Eden. In other words, Noah is just like Adam. The righteous, most godly human on the face of the planet. If we were to start over with him, the flood story is saying, we still got sin on the ark. That story comes immediately after the bountiful promises of God to not destroy the earth. Just like Adam was given immense, generous blessing, the next story is fall. Noah, wonderful salvation, blessing given to Noah and his family, a covenant to never curse the earth, and there's a fall. It's a pattern that continues all through the Old Testament. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through that whole pattern, but just notice every time God does something amazing and saves and wonderfully blesses, there's oftentimes the very next story, humans screw it up. So Noah's family, cursed, east from Eden, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language. These whole earth, meaning the descendants of Noah, as we just read in Genesis 10, if you read through that chapter. And they migrated from the east and found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They're no longer in the heavens, in the clouds of the mountains where Noah was when he landed on the ark. Now they're in the plains. They're in the flatlands of Shinar and they're, they're from the east. And as they're in these flat plains, the family of Noah tries to open the way to heaven, to bridge the gap between heaven and earth and build a city with a tower that reaches the heavens. So what does God do? What's his response? Is he thinking, well, these people have great initiative, good willpower. 
They're willing to help themselves. I help those who help themselves. Does God come down and give them advice for how to do it better? Does he want them to ultimately be happier in their current situation and circumstance? No, God is not impressed. Verse 5 says, And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower. I think this is narrative irony. They were trying to reach the heavens, and God says, I need to come down just to see it. And then God disperses with a severe mercy. In his love and kindness and in his wrath and judgment, God brings confusion to restrain humans from being able to make their way to heaven on their own terms. In other words, that way to heaven is closed. The gate is not open through a tower of your own effort and technology and strength. So as we go back to Christian Smith, with those teenagers in 2005, were they right? Moralism. The Bible teaches people are generally good. Live a good life and God will help you and you pull yourself up and help yourselves. Moralism. Is that the first 10, 11 chapters of the Bible? Therapeutic. Christianity is about feeling good and God helping you feel better. Deism. Is the God of the Bible far off and only come down every once in a while when you need some help? No, so far in the Bible, God helps those who can't seem to get their act together. Those who can't help themselves. Christianity is at its core news about God and who he is and what he's done. It's not advice. It's not helping you make your life a little better. Oh, try Jesus. The God of the Bible is a seeker. He initiates. He draws near. He comes down even when we're running from him. And that's the backstory to our story. Turn again to Matthew, I mean Genesis chapter 28. And, and as we pick up the story from the Tower of Babel, the dispersion of the nations, God has chosen one nation and said, through this nation, the family of Abraham, who had a son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, I will bless all the families of the earth. I will come. I will bring blessing. I will not be far off and distant. I will get in the middle of your lives and your problems. And I will bring that blessing through the family of Abraham. And as we read in chapter 28, verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. Jacob is headed east. How do we know that? Look at chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey after this dream, and he came to the land of the people of where? The east. Jacob is moving east. From where? from the land that God gave to Abraham, that he said, this will be the place, this will be the land that I will give to you so that you will be the salvation blessing to all of the earth. I'm not choosing Abraham so that I can pick favorites. I'm choosing Abraham so that through you, Abraham, there will be a human. And that human will bridge the gap and open the gate of heaven. But Jacob as we see in our story, is moving away from the land. And why is he moving away from the land? Well, if you read the previous chapter, it's because he just stole the birthright and blessing from his older brother Esau. Esau wants to kill Jacob. 
Jacob is running from his life, moving from the land God promised out of the land that God promised. Jacob is not married at this point. But the promise that Jacob has that is irrevocable, that has been given to him as he stole it from his older brother is a promise that says you will be a large family in this land. Not married, running for his life. His brother wants to kill him. He's leaving the land. Can you sense the tension, the drama? When you're reading the book of Genesis, you need to regularly be reminded that God makes promises, and at every twist and turn of these stories, these promises are seeming to be in danger of coming true. Read through Genesis in that light, and you will have stories pop with new meaning and life. And here in this story, Jacob is not seeking God. He is not looking for God. He is not obeying God. He is not moving toward God. He is running away from the place where the presence was to dwell. Jacob is a great example of all of us. The human condition. Jacob wanted the promise and blessing from his father so bad that he would do anything, lie, cheat, and steal to get it. In fact, he specifically dressed up to be like his brother and pretend to be someone else. Oh, how often do you and I look like Jacob? Dressing up, covering up who you really are, trying to be someone that you are not, desperately wanting something so bad that you will cut any kind of corner to get it now. And it's there, in those moments of your life, that God comes down. At least, it's in that moment that God comes down to Jacob. This is what God is like in the Bible. Not the far-off distant deity, but the God who comes to, and comes to not just any sort of people, but the sort of people that are not deserving of his promises. So look at this story. Let's just walk through this story again and see if it does not help you see that moralistic, therapeutic deism is no gospel at all. It is not Christianity. Jacob's leaving Beersheba. He's heading toward Haran. He's moving east. He's running for his life. Verse 11, he comes to a certain place. Three times the word place in the Hebrew is used to try and say, well, he just kind of randomly stopped in the middle of nowhere. He there stays the night because the sun had set. So on his journey, a few days at least, he has to stop and get some sleep. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay it down in the place to sleep. Some people want to emphasize that Jacob has nothing. He doesn't even have a pillow. This man is down and out. That could be true. There's also arguments that Jacob is using that stone, not necessarily for a pillow to lay his head, because I don't know about you guys, but I'm thinking the ground seems better than a pillow. It could be a large stone or rock that's used as a protection from kind of the wild animals. There's various theories, but that's what's going on to set up really the center of this story, which is the dream. So he laid down in this random place, where there was a stone where he took that stone and he put that by his head or under his head. And then he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder. Now, ladder is a terrible translation. You even might have a footnote in your Bible. Mine does. It says, this could also be translated ramp or stairway. The Hebrew word is salom. It only appears here in the whole Bible. So it's, it's one of those debated words. But here's the concept. 
I think the reason I wanted you to hear about the Tower of Babel story is because this is not just a ladder with rungs, you know, where you've got two sides of wood and then in between those two pieces of wood, you've got rungs that you kind of climb up on a ladder. No, this is a ziggurat. Ziggurat was an ancient temple like a pyramid that had stairs to reach up to heaven. Many people think that's exactly what was going on in Genesis chapter 11. They built a city, and in the middle of that city, there'd be like a spiral staircase or something that would make its way up. Those stairs are what I think Jacob is dreaming and seeing. And that's the word that I think best captures this translation. Either way, I don't care if you want to sing with the old song, We're climbing Jacob's ladder. I had that song stuck in my head. I don't know if you know it, but it's an old kind of spiritual song. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. No? Whether it's a ladder or a staircase, the point is he sees a structure, right? And this structure has angels, messengers from heaven that are ascending and they are descending on this structure. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord stood above it or by him. This is another one of the very debated things in this text. Is the it, it's just a basic word, it, is the it referring to Jacob, like by his head, and that God came all the way down next to Jacob? Or is it just saying that heaven is opened up and there he can see God at the top of this ladder structure stairway? Either way, We see the center of the dream, the main point, is the words from God. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. In light of the context of the backstory of humans in general and Jacob's story in particular, how do you not have something within you when you just meditate on this to say, wow, the God of the Bible is good kind, loving, radically gracious. He just gave Abraham a reassurance of the promise when he is sleeping, passively laying out, sleeping in the middle of his journey away from God, away from the presence of God, from the land of God, from the blessings of God, and God in the middle of all of that comes down opens the gate of heaven and the doorway to heaven and says, I am not going to let you screw up my promises. You can never run too far to mess up the plans I have for you and your family because those plans are not just for you and your family, they're for the whole earth, from north to south to east to west. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Jacob. Friends, are you starting to realize that moralistic, therapeutic deism is not even close to the Bible's message? It is not about living a good life and God helps those who help themselves. It is not about therapy, Christianity is to help you feel good when you're hurting and sad. It is not God being far off and every once in a while comes down when you ask for help. 
No, God helps those who can't help themselves. Christianity is about the promises of God, the word of God being declared like he says to Jacob and says, here's the promise and it's happening. It is not good advice. The God of the Bible is the ultimate seeker. He draws near even when you run from him. Or let's just put it this way so you can remember it and sing it as I ran my hellbound race. Indifferent to the cost, he looked upon my helpless state and he led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed when you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath that was reserved for me and now all I know is grace. Brother and sisters, be reminded today of God's seeking us prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. That's the God of the Bible. Do you remember that? Do you remember that in your own conversion story? When you were running away from God like Jacob, when you wanted something so bad that you had reordered your life around that thing, that created lesser thing, not God, And you would do whatever it takes to get that thing. Maybe multiple things. Do you realize how many times you and I are dressing each other up, dressing ourselves up for the sake of others, our fear of man, realizing how often we don't want people to know who we really are? And God in his kindness comes down, stops us in our tracks, meets us where we're at. And on grace and grace alone, saves us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what our story's about? Jesus and the salvation of Jesus? You better believe it. Why do you think Eddie got up here and read for us John chapter one? Because the beginning of the story can only be made sense if we start at the very beginning. And the story itself can only be made sense if we then jump forward and read the end of the story. John chapter 1. Turn your Bibles there and let's finish our time in God's word for this message in John chapter 1. And look again at what Eddie read for us just a little bit ago. In John chapter 1 verses 43 to 51, the first opening chapter of John's gospel, Jesus is going to Galilee. That's verse 43. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Philip follows him from Bethsaida, the city where Andrew and Peter were. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, guess what, Nathanael? We found the one whom Moses talked about, the one the prophets prophesied about, Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael says, no, I don't think so. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. The Messiah, he's not going to come from a far off, no-name town. The Messiah is going to come into a palace. Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem or Rome, not Nazareth. It's not what God's like. Nathaniel's doubting, unbelieving that God would do something like that. Come down in the middle of human history when you're not expecting it in ways in which the rest of the world would scratch their head. But Philip says, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus said to Nathaniel, coming toward him and saying him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, or as the old King James says, there is no guile. Nathaniel responds to Jesus and says, how do you know who I am? 
And Jesus answered him and said, well, before Philip called you, do you remember when you were sitting under the fig tree? I, I saw you. I know who you were even then. I have no idea what's going on in the fig tree. That doesn't seem to be the point. It's that Jesus had some kind of divine knowledge, which is clear when Nathaniel then says, oh my, rabbi, teacher, you must actually be the son of God, even from Nazareth. Go figure. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, man, I tell you, because I knew that you were under the fig tree, you're impressed and you're now going to believe? Hey, buddy, you haven't seen nothing yet. That's Phil's translation. The actual text in the English Standard Version says, you will see greater things than these. Notice the important tense of that verb. You will see. He's not yet seeing. You will see even greater things than these. In fact, Jesus doubles down, verse 51, and then he says, truly, truly, it's the the Greek word, amen. You guys know when we say amen, amen, comes from a, a Hebrew word. And it means true, verily, verily, truly, truly. So when somebody's praying, and at the end we say, in Jesus' name, amen, it's for you to then respond and say, amen. It's really actually helpful when you're praying, and it's a little aside, by the way, corporately, you're praying with more than one person. You're praying in a group, and they pray, and you agree with it. You could let them know by saying, amen, truly. I agree with that prayer. I'm going to get on with that prayer and say, amen. Let's practice that. Jesus, make much of yourself in your glorious name. Amen? Amen. That's the word. And so he says, truly, truly, amen and amen, he tells these disciples. I say to you, you will see, again, we'll see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? Not on a ladder. Not on a ziggurat or stairway. The gate of heaven will open and angels will come to and fro giving the revelation of God's message. Heaven's door will be opened on the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Well, Jesus is referring to himself. It's his most common way to refer to himself cryptically because the phrase son of man means son of a human. Well, that's saying a lot. Thank you, Jesus. You are telling us very little unless you know your Bible. And these guys knew their Bibles. Son of man was not just a basic phrase, although it was just a basic phrase for a human, a son of a human, of a man. It was also a title, a messianic prophecy of one human who would be raised into the clouds of heaven and seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and been given the authority to judge the nations. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Most scholars seem to agree that that's what Jesus is doing. He's trying to cryptically not say too much, so he he gets killed too early, and so he calls himself not son of God, He never denies that he's the son of God, but he often calls himself the son of man, the one who is a human, the human who would ascend with the clouds into the heavens. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Because Jesus Christ humbled himself, becoming a human, 
dying a death in our place. God raised him up and gave him the seat of honor that is due the Son of Man, according to Daniel 7. Jesus, through his descent to earth, his descent to the dead, his ascent to heaven, is the reason that heaven's gate is opened. It is not a tower in a town called Babel. It is not through a ziggurat in the middle of the Middle East. Jesus tells Nathanael and the disciples around him, you all will see even greater things. And when they will see those things is when the Son of Man, if you read the rest of the gospel, this is an introductory kind of chapter telling you, you're about to see something great, much greater than I knowing you were under a fig tree. When Jesus is lifted up, ascended, first on the cross as he dies, and then through his resurrection and ascension when his death is vindicated by God Almighty. In other words, you will not understand Christianity, the message of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, if you do not understand that Jesus is the stairway to heaven. He is not a great moral teacher telling you how to get to the stairway. He is the stairway. Heaven and all of its glories will never be opened to you until you see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He did not ascend the steps as our moral example. He became our substitute and was lifted up first on a cross, experiencing the nakedness and shame that both Adam and Noah experienced in their rebellion and sin. He ascended into heaven after being raised from the dead, and he did what you and I could never do. He was seated at the right hand of the Father as the pure and blameless one, the righteous and holy one. Jesus says that angels will ascend and descend on him, not to him. Therefore, the real way to open the gate of heaven is not on a what, but through a who. As the ancients would call it, the axis mundi, the center of the universe. Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. As Tim Keller says, Heaven and earth have been intersected over Jesus' dead and resurrected body. So what is the gospel? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm hoping you're starting to understand that the gospel is not moralism. Well, just live a good life. We're, We're all generally mostly good. We do some bad things, but God wants to help you. So he gives you the Bible to help you be a good person. That's called moralism. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not a feel-good message to help you when you're hurting. It can, it does, but sometimes God comes down with severe mercy. Severe mercy. He comes down and you feel worse because you're confronted with your rebellion against God, your sin against him. Many times the way up to feeling better is down and feeling the true weight of our sin. Christianity is not moralistic, it's not therapeutic, it is not deism. The God of the Bible is not distant and far off. He comes down, even when you're not looking and asking for help. And here we have a collection of people spread out across the lawn here. And time and time again, I get the opportunity and privilege to hear your stories. And you know a a common theme in those stories? It's not moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's God helped me when I couldn't help myself. It's that God gave me good news and not just some good advice. 
It's that the God of the Bible was seeking me even when I wasn't seeking him. He drew near even when I was running from him. Or to use the actual language of scripture, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait till you cleaned yourself up. He died while you were still a sinner. Or as John says in 1 John, brothers and sisters, we love God because he first loved us. Or as Paul says in Titus 3, at one time we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We were hated and hating one another. Well, that's a chipper good morning to you. Welcome to Embassy Church. We're a collection of foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions, pleasures kind of people. We live in malice and envy. We've been hating and been hated. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. The mercy that's displayed in Jesus Christ. Descent from heaven to earth and us sent back into heaven, all centered around this cross where he dies in our place. Are you understanding the gospel? It's not moralistic therapeutic deism. And are you understanding why the ascension is not just a small little side parentheses? Oh yeah, by the way, 40 days after Easter, there's this thing called Ascension Day. That's part of the whole narrative of restoring what was lost in Genesis chapter 2. God taking a human and raising him up into the garden-like paradise where God and man could dwell together for all of eternity. And Jesus has made that way. He is the stairway. He is the gate that opens heaven. Believe in it. Trust it. Know it. Declare it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come now in the name of Jesus. And we pray that the spirit of God would descend. In the same way that those angels ascend and descend because heaven has been opened. We pray that you would burst through the heavens again. Peel open the skies and bring forth your spirit richly on our church, on this gathering of this time that we have together today. We pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us by your spirit and that we would pursue love and good deeds, but not as the basis of our salvation, but as the fruit of this amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So we pray now, God, that all who have heard and who will hear this message, they will receive and apply it to their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.